0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023 Potential savings will vary Discounts not available in all states and situations
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman Canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in at canva.com designed for work
2: This archival episode of Design Matters originally came out in November of 2021
3: We're all complicit, you know, in this society, one way or another. As soon as you send a check to an electric company, you're you're giving away th- your agency. You're giving away your vote in what's happening in that particular part of nature. <music>
2: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Nick Offerman talks about his career and about the perilous state of the natural world.
3: I'm hopeful that we can still turn it around in time to uh, enjoy a sandwich in another 50 years.
1: Nick Offerman is a famous comedian and actor, so you probably know a lot about him. You most certainly know that he played Amy Poehler's boss, Ron Swanson, on the sitcom Parks and Recreation. And you might know he's married to Megan Mullally, and he appeared on that show as a plumber. But did you know that Nick Offerman is also a professional boat builder, and that he's written not one, not two, but five really funny books? His latest is Where the d Play, The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside. He joins me to talk about his remarkably variegated career and to talk about his brand new book. Nick Offerman, welcome to
3: the Thank you so much. Uh, I'm so pleased to be here. Um, Thank
1: so, you. so, is it true that your ultimate soundtrack for lovemaking is Peter Gabriel's music for The Last Temptation of Christ?
3: Be hard pressed to find uh, a more suitable record. You know, it, it has uh, it has romance, it has ambiance, and it also has screams of ag- agony. So if you time it right, you know it's like putting into the Wizard of Oz. If you sync it up right, uh, everything matches up.
1: <laughs> what makes it such an aphrodisiac, though, is that is there something about the sort of crescendo?
3: I don't. I mean, I don't know the. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's it's a mostly instrumental. Peter Gabriel tour de force. It's really drum-heavy and like period-sounding, like otherworldly orchestrations. And so I've, I've just always found it to be really moving. No one has ever asked me why, so I haven't really examined it. But I guess <laughs> uh, I guess his his rhythm in my own uh, must align. He, something about music gets my juices flowing.
1: Nick, you were born in the little town of Minuka, Illinois. Did I pronounce that correctly? Minuka. That's right,
3: yes. And Manuka. your
1: mom was a nurse. Your dad taught social studies at the local high school. And working on your grandparents' farm where they grew corn and beans and raised pigs. Um, what kind of work did you do on the farm?
3: Oh, just menial labor. I mean, my first job, you know, it, if you work in agriculture, to have kids because that's your that's your labor pool, um, and they'll work for a sandwich generally. And so, as a really small kid, uh, Grandpa would have me shovel out the the poop out of the pig barn. That was my first job, uh, which means ri- riding out behind the baler as as the hay is harvested and stacking the bales. You know, throwing them up in the barn. And then on a soybean farm, one of the most prevalent summer job called walking beans, where you actually walk up and down the rows of the entire fields of soybeans just killing the weeds. We all learned to drive by the time we were eleven or twelve, so we could haul empty wagons to be filled with corn and soybeans and stuff like that. And and then other, you know, just odd jobs. There was another job picking up rocks. So once the harvest would be done and last year's stems would be plowed under, over, often rocks, sometimes as big as your head, would be turned up in the soil. And so you would be sent out with a tractor and a little trailer to just cover the entire field and pick up all the rocks you see. <laughs>
1: I read that when you were in the fourth grade studying vocabulary, when your teacher taught the class the word nonconformist, she defined it as a person who did the opposite of what everybody else was doing. Upon hearing that, you raised your hand Christensen, you wanted to be a nonconformist. Um, where did that sensibility come from?
3: Your question reminds me of At a young age, I want to say maybe first or second grade, I I remember in art, we had this project where we got a little piece of wood and a little paper cutout of a smiling clown head, and then uh, another little paper cutout that said, a smile is the nicest kind of welcome. And then stain the piece of wood and then glue the clown head and the text onto the the thing, and then varnish the whole shebang and take it home for mom and dad. And I remember looking at that sentiment, a smile is, and it made me feel kind of whimsical. And so I tilted my clown head to what I considered a a rakish, whimsical angle. And my teacher gave me a C and said, look at this, the, and I said, Ma'am, that is a rakish angle. Uh, that, <laughs> I will one day come to know that that's called panache. And so I just I just always had this sensibility of, like, adding a little bit of a j- <laughs> whatever I did. And so when I heard that that was called nonconformity, I said, yes, please please count me in for one of those.
1: Nick, I, I know you were also an altar boy at church, and I've said that that helped you. Because- at eye acting. What is eye acting exactly? I mean, besides the, you know, just the obvious of acting with your eyes, like, how do you do that?
3: What I determined from, you know, my first stage was the altar of the Catholic Church gave me any lines. And so I realized if I was going to get any response out of the crowd, I was going to have to learn how to use my eyebrows and my intense gaze. And it was there that that I began to understand. I did get to ring the bells uh, a couple times during the mass, and so with my timing and depending on my uh, eye line, I could really make my friends laugh just with my demeanor. And eventually, they had me start doing things in a position known as the lector. And so then it carried over where I found that if I had the right amount of gravitas and intense focus, the parents would be tricked into thinking that was sincerity. <laughs> 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 While all my friends just thought it was the, the most hilarious, like Leslie Nielsen in airplane kind of delivery.
1: At, at that point in your life, what did you think you wanted to do professionally?
3: Well, you know, working in the arts was not an available choice. I didn't have the wherewithal to understand that that's what I wanted to do. I, I could have said to you, well, I love to play music. I play the saxophone and uh, and I love to like perform. But I wasn't aware uh, that you could get a job in either of those fields. My upbringing was such a cultural vacuum that I didn't understand that people from my school could become a sax player or a, an actor. I I was pretty confused. Um I loved using tools and building things with my hands, but I again, I I didn't understand that that was a creative job. Like when I used to do it as a teenager, I I worked framing houses crew, and so those labor jobs didn't seem like something to aspire to. I had no idea that one day I would become a a fine furniture builder or boat builder. I was a pretty successful mountain. I could put on a show, I could sort of charm people into thinking they should elect me to, like, student council president or things like that when, when I knew secretly that I was just going to try and steal all the candy bars for me and my friends.
1: Well, I understand that when you attended the University of Illinois, you would dress up as a carpenter and go to the library to see how many tables you could take apart before somebody stopped you, and I'm wondering, generally speaking, how many tables were you able to being found out?
3: Uh, usually, I, I don't. I think that a record was probably three, <laughs> and I, I forgot about that. That I mean, that was uh, <laughs> that was before you know, that was obviously before the internet. We needed to, and so me and my buddy would go, and it's it's pretty, it's a fun, harmless prank. I mean, we. We always then put the tables back together. We, you know, we weren't monsters. I still feel like there were much more... been spending our time.
1: Absolutely. I think that, that, you know, just to make sure that all the joists are tight is, is good when you were putting them back together, I assume, right?
3: Uh, sure. I mean, th- that's just good manners.
1: <laughs> now, initially, you thought you... Music. But everything changed for you when your then-born-again Christian girlfriend auditioned for the dance department and you drove her three hours to the audition. And while waiting for her, you hung out in the hallway of the Performing Arts building. A little bit about what happened when you were there.
3: Yeah, I mean, it it was pretty astonishing. Uh, If you've ever been to the Lincoln Center in in New York, it's times, amazing The theater and dance facility at the University of Illinois Urbana was designed by the same architect as the Lincoln Center. So similarly, it's a city block with four theaters, one facing each street direction, all connected underground by levels of shops, costume shops. Uh, massive hallways where you can you can build a, a house set and then load it with forklifts, you know, into the massive backstage opera bay doors and stuff. So it was an incredible facility that I'm hanging out in the hallway while my, my girlfriend is auditioning. And I, I can't remember what the inciting moment was, but I ran into these two acting students at the time named McCarthy and David something, and uh, oh, I can picture his face. He played Hyman and As You Like It. David Coronado. Wow. And I ran into them, and and magically, a conversation. I think they must have said, "Hey, kid, why are you loitering in this hallway?" And I said, "I'm waiting for my girlfriend." But somehow we got onto the subject of I. Said, what, what are you? Said they were theater students. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, we're studying to become theater actors. And I said, what? Hang on. What does that mean? And they, like, you can get a job doing plays. Is that a thing? I heard of London and I had heard of Broadway, but I, I was in Illinois. And and they said, yeah, we, when we graduate, you know, we hope to move to Chicago where you can make a living performing in plays. And I just, somebody just invented electricity. I was so excited. I went home to my mom and dad and said, you can get paid to do plays in Chicago. That's what I want to do.
1: What was their and, response?
3: God bless them. They, I have always said, you know... I've had some crazy ideas in my life, but I always work really hard and do my best, no matter what cockamamie scheme I'm up to. And so they said, look, we'll support you. Uh, try to have something to fall back on. Or like you should, you know, you try and have a way to make money, which ended up being using my my carpentry skills. But they supported me and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I went and had to do my first audition to get into the, the conservatory there at the University of Illinois, and they were short on uh, strong young men to carry the talented people on and off stage. And so I was able to in 1988.
1: In my research, I discovered that while you were in school, you took two semesters of ballet. And enrolled in a kabuki theater class taught by Shozo Sato and ended up traveling to Japan with Sato's kabuki troupe. Um, did that work influence how you were approaching your acting?
3: Well, sure. I mean, you know, all these Illinois kids basically are suddenly learning this traditional Japanese art form. His genius, he's an award winning uh, theater artist and his genius was for taking the plays of Shakespeare or Greek dramas and interpreting them in the kabuki style. So the makeup, the wigs, the presentational work, it was fantastic, you know, Kabuki Othello, Kabuki Aristophanes, the frogs, or what have you. It was such profound lessons in showmanship. In so many ways, the uh, the reverend kabuki artists the way they treat the stage and the audience and the art form felt holy to me in a way that church, they always said church was supposed to, but that never really clicked. Like, because it passion it, of the theater. And I think that's part of what led me to the stage was growing up in the Catholic Church. And I got, I appreciate the values, you know, the lessons of of the church, but it just didn't, you know, nobody was... It was like, man, that sermon really uh, blew me away or made me cry. So I wanted to take the sort of values of of a religion and, f- and take it to a different kind of barn. And that's what they taught me in Kabuki. was Before every show, everyone would do this stretching exercise where you line up all the way across the stage, kneeling in front of a towel. And you do this sort of stretching. It's sort of yogic. You push the towel then do kind of a pose until you push yourself all the way across the stage. So the whole company cleans the stage before every show. So, I mean, it really has this reverential sort of shrine atmosphere. And then when we started a theater, me and my friends, a lot of us had come from that Kabuki training. And so we were able to bring that a lot of the same aesthetic to our own you know, crappy little Chicago company.
1: You earned your degree in theater, but have said that in the theater school, it became clear that you were trying too hard to be hip and cool and urbane and had unwittingly thought that your sort of country rude persona would not be interesting to an audience. When did you realize...
3: Uh, uh. I mean, because of the Kabuki show, we, we took a year off school. We toured Japan, and it was Kabuki Achilles. It was uh, an adaptation of the. And this was 1991. And I, hate to, I always hate this sentence, but the first Gulf War had just broken out, mm. like while we were in production in Champaign, Urbana. We took the show to Japan. Some producers loved it. More message. Of Achilles and Hector ultimately saying to each other, you are as I, we're the same. Why are are we trying to kill each other? We ended up touring Hungary and then we Philly uh, for six months called the People's Light and Theater Company in Malvern, uh, which is up the main line from Philadelphia. And so that was a year off school. So I spent five years in theater school, all told. And then years into Chicago after school where naturalism finally began to occur to me where uh, I don't know the insecurity or the ignorance I just chipped away at it until finally I realized simply finally get it just act like yourself and i would just so thick-headed it literally took me like six or seven years to get it so once that happened my best friend, this genius director and actor named Joe, he had been waiting for it for years. He desperately wanted me to, to, <laughs> to catch on. And I finally got it. And so once that happened, I, I looked back at all these auditions and, and said, oh, I see. So I'm never going to... Cool, leather jacket, sort of finger and daddy. That's, uh, that's not my bag. I'm going to get cast as a laborer or a plumber or a bus driver or what have you, or, or a scary version of those guys, That then my life kind of began. That was ground zero where I said, okay, the tools that I have, who I am, what I grew up as, that's the most valuable thing in my toolbox. So let me now begin to build my whole you know, career, my body of work around that particular set of tools.
1: You and your friends founded the experimental company, the Defiant Theater. And you've said that if you had started auditioning at big theaters before this, you'd probably still be there. Was it when you developed the Defiant Theater that that realization about your country Rube persona first occurred to you?
3: It was in those years. Yes. Uh, It was my, my best friend was one of our main directors, and so they would pick shows to do. And I I built uh, the scenery for this company. Like, I had all the tools. I drove the truck. So in many ways, I was the dad of the company. I'd choose shows where I would say, oh, perfect. This role is perfect for me. And then I wouldn't get the part that cast somebody outside the company. And I would say, hey, man, what's the deal? And, and my best friend and roommate would say, Always have to cast the best actor for the show, and that's this other guy because you're not that good yet. And I would say, well, I believe you. Uh, I and uh, you know, the baby in me is about that, but I understand. But at and least so, the, the,
1: there was the word "yet" there. That's that's encouraging.
3: It was, and and it just you know, it, like all things, it was a slowly accumulating awareness. Of what it took. I was really grateful I I would get supporting roles and then finally I did a good enough audition for this play called The Quarantine that that Joe was directing and and I finally got the lead and you know I was perfectly meeting better than I had been. That's the beautiful thing about life maintaining the attitude of a student is that I'm still on the same journey. Hopefully The next play I do, I'll be better than the last play I did.
1: It was around this time that you became friends with Amy Poehler, but you didn't get involved with comedy until your mid-30s when you started to work with Amy at her Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York. Why did it take you to realize your comic chops?
3: Well, I I loved making people laugh. I mean, but I... When you study legitimate theater at like a drama school, basically, comedy is simply one of the you you are hoping to work at theaters that put on a season, so you're prepared to do Shakespeare or Chekhov or Sam Shepard or uh, absurdist, you know Pirandello or Pinter or you name it, musical theater or like Fado farces, like you hopefully. In your toolbox you are able to do anything that's on the season and one of my favorite things to do was be funny and make people laugh it's a weird specialization thought and nowhere is more specialized than hollywood like if if my big break was playing a tennis player in a movie nobody then wants me to audition to play basketball because they say no 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 you're the tennis guy Amy, um, when she was studying at the Improv Olympic in Second City in Chicago, and I didn't even understand what that meant. I'd, I had never been to an improv or sketch theater, and she, it sounded she was saying she and her friends were making stuff up in a bar uh, to make people laugh, and I was like, okay, th- have fun with that. I'm trying to perform works of literature, you know. Like I, I had some snotty separation, and then years later, I was like, "Wait a second, you were on the path to SNL, son <laughs> of a bitch!" Like you know, I had no idea, and so it was. It was only years later that I that I realized the realization of Hollywood's uh, brain. It occurred to me that I was not getting auditions for comedy stuff, where I was like, oh, I specifically had to call Amy and say, hey, can I start doing stuff at your comedy theater, the Upright City? So that the business will th- view me as someone who can be funny. So I did it. And within minutes, people, uh, casting directors, were calling and saying, I didn't know you'd do comedy. What? what I, I just, I just do acting. I don't, like, I do whatever. I can be a horrible bad guy, or I can be an absolute clown. Um, I, sorry, I didn't realize I had to, like, let you guys know that. Funny, then my big break was Parks and Recreation. Then I, there was a period where I had to convince people that I could be dramatic. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't.
1: What made you decide to move to Los Angeles, given your love of the theater? At that point, were you? Be determined to go beyond the theater?
3: No, I, it was pretty stupid. I mean, it, uh, I, I have had a pretty blissfully ignorant existence really my whole life. Things were going well in Chicago I to get cast in good parts at big theaters. I, I won like an, an award for acting in this Pulitzer Prize winning play called The Kentucky Cycle that was really good. So things were going great and I jobs and people out, that were from LA working on the films were very encouraging. They said you you make really funny faces. You should move to Los Angeles. They pay well for f- funny face makers there. It good. And it never occurred to me that Los Angeles would not be as I, I just assumed it would be an even better theater town than chicago because it's where it's where hollywood is it's the greatest writers and actors and directors in the country i got there you know i was like well the, so i'll get to keep doing theater obviously but then also i can work maybe in tv and film and i got there only to discover that it's not at all as good of a theater town because everyone's trying to work in TV and film. So there's, there's theater happening, but nobody cares. So it it led to two or three years of absolute confusion and even depression. Like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. I was, (laughs) my, my adulthood is founded, is built upon theater. And now I've moved to the world of sitcoms. Uh, What have I done?
1: I read that you were told to watch at least of every show on television so that when you auditioned, you'd know what kind of bullshit they were selling. But you didn't want to <laughs> watch any television. How come?
3: There are certain defense mechanisms in Chicago theater that allow you to remain in Chicago theater and not feel like you have to move to New York or L.A. And so it, you have to sort of remind yourself why... Chicago is better than Broadway or Hollywood. Broadway that's it's, you know that's selling out. It's all it's too expensive. It's you know they're stuck up, etc. And L.A. is completely selling out. Like David Schwimmer was a contemporary of mine, and just before we got to Chicago, had just I think moved out and gotten started on Friends. And so when I was in Chicago, if you threatened to move to L.A., people would accuse you of pulling the swimmer, <laughs> um, which was, we're, we're artists, we're trying to make art, we're not trying to get rich or famous. And so um, I lived incredibly frugally, uh, which is a very polite way to say, like, I lived like a bum, I survived on peanuts all through my 20s. I was young and pretty bulletproof. So as long as I was doing theater twenty four seven, you could always get a burrito or a sandwich someplace. But having. That was a luxury. You didn't need one. Who had time to sit around and watch Tv? But there was also this anti sitcom sensibility. What would you need a Tv for? Like we're, we're performing the works of Ibsen. Uh, which, you know, of course, was like a, a pretentious uh, defense mechanism, but but that's why I didn't have a TV and and it's funny. I mean'm I'm, I'm, it's still something I'm wrestling with where when you look at uh, film and television yourself eventually, if you're lucky, lucky enough to get work in the business, what is it you want? Do you want to get rich and famous? Do you want to make good art? you know, do you want to like? deliver medicine to an audience after, or pathos, or catharsis, you know, what is it you're after? And then that directly affects the choices you begin to make, where are you going to get on the hamster wheel and run like hell, for hold, or not, do you want to have a more considered, more unique personal approach to your work as an artist? So things like being told you should watch one episode of every show so that you can like what they do or sort of ape their taste, that pretty quickly became clear to me as a fallacious idea where I was like, uh, if, if I succeed, I want it to be because people see something in me. Oh, this is good and fresh and like we want this ingredient in our recipe. I don't want them to hire me because they're like, ooh, he's kind of similar to David Schwimmer or whoever else. You know, he, he's kind of similar to a proven safe. Uh, he could be a third Belushi or whatever. You know, let's put him on our show. To me, that's not my bag. That would be really depressing. So I worked a lot less than maybe I would have if, if I just was like, hey, guys, I let's have fun.
1: Several years in, you were living in a basement in Silver Lake and hadn't had a TV for ten years. When you went on an an audition for the play *The Berlin Circle* and heard that Megan Mullally, one of the stars of television shows on the planet, was starring, yet you weren't impressed.
3: Well, no, that was—I mean, that was the last bastion (laughs) of my my Chicago snobbery, my dumb (laughs) defense chicago snobbery because even when i got cast in the show they dangled megan as an incentive where they're like and our lead is is on the new hit show will and grace they had just finished their second season uh this was the spring and i said listen i know that that's supposed to be an incentive but i'm from chicago theater uh (laughs) I've played John Proctor in the Crucible, so <laughs> uh, you know I, I'm foolishly like, half my head up my ass. So, By your Megan Mullally's, and then the first day, you know, we did like a table read, and I was, of course, you know, I was like, oh shit, you're a you're a legend. Like immediately, you're the great ever done a table read with, and I, I was had a friend with a TV and i believe you know th- this is pre streaming uh, so uh, thankfully i was able to watch a couple of will and grace reruns <laughs> was over i think and i saw the scales fall from my eyes but not immediately the first one i watched i was like oh man i feel so bad for these people <laughs> like the, they right. tr- they're trying, they're trying so hard they're broad or so you know and then p- p- towards the end of that, and then I was like, oh, hey, let me watch another one. And by the end of the second episode, my shithead goggles, like, cleared up. And I said, oh, sh**. This is the same as onstage farce, like, the, the most delicious, concentrated version. So by the time I finished two and three episodes, I said, A, I, I'm so happy I'm working with this le- how can I get a job like that? And so <laughs> what good luck that these things befell me that I was able to like lose that dumb sensibility and say, Oh, everything is allowed. Don't be
1: I, I think that Karen Walker is really one of the greatest television characters that has ever occurred in our culture. <laughs> she is I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, She's there is I mean no one funnier. No one no offense. <laughs> I,
3: not, none taken. I, I mean, she. Uh, we have a, a powerful teacher-student relationship, and I have no misgu- like I, I'm I'm, per- I'm perfectly fine with my skill set and what I bring to the table. But I, I'm, I'm always t- to be a supporting character to Megan Mullally. She's incredible. I mean. I'm sincerely her biggest fan.
1: You were both staunchly single when you first met, but found eternal love, I believe, at a Glen Campbell concert. Glen Campbell.
3: That's, yeah, that's that was where Cupid's arrow like, f- fully <laughs> went. Who would ker- have thought ker- Glen Campbell? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we would. I mean, we're huge Glen Campbell fans. I come from a small town in a rural upbringing. From Oklahoma City, which although it's a state capital, feels strangely like a small town. Glenn Campbell definitely fits in Oklahoma City, and so "Rhinestone Cowboy" at the Hollywood Bowl is not say yes, please uh, wrap us up in a blanket, give us something to drink, and uh, let us be kissing by the end of that song.
1: But I understand your first makeout session was to the great Beck song "Beautiful Way." So you guys
3: have range. You have and Megan. Megan is like a musical encyclopedia. I mean, her amazing band, Nancy and Beth, covers everything from the Mills Brothers. She she does a a vocal interpretation of the Dying Swan from the ballet, like all the way to like completely modern Rufus Wainwright song or Randy Newman songs, uh, Patty Griffin songs. There's no uh, rhyme or reason to the eclectic choices she covers. I also benefited greatly from her acumen.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.
1: got a part on Will & Grace that ultimately went to Woody Harrelson, and you also auditioned for the role of Michael Scott in The Office. You didn't get either, but your audition created the seed for the casting director that became your character, Ron Swanson. And is it true that when you got the call from your producer, Mike Schur, you sobbed for 30 minutes upon hearing you got the role?
3: Uh, it, it, I mean, it, Thirty minutes might be. It, it may have been more like. <laughs> 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 Professionally, it was all of the parts that I didn't get for so many years, paid off so powerfully with su- such an, um, an emotional catharsis, because all of us weren't right. You know, it would have been wonderful to get a cool part on a show, but we've seen th- the examples. You've, you've cited. The reason I didn't get the roles is because there were better people. Finally, the role found me that no one ostensibly could have done better. So life clicked in for me at age 38, I think I was. It was like the end of the Lord of the Rings or something where I was like, oh my God, it all made Everything Gandalf ever said to me suddenly hit home. And so I had a very... Emotional gratitude filled reaction.
1: You played Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation for all of the show's seven seasons to great acclaim. Critics Association Award for Individual Achievement in Comedy, twice nominated for the Critics' Choice Television Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. You've also starred in movies including The Founder and Hearts Beat Loud in the television. Argo devs, which I just binge-watched and loved. I need to ask you you about your hair in that one. And along with Amy Poehler, you hosted the NBC realities. you host the NBC reality series, Making It, and have been nominated for two. Um, congratulations on all of that. Yeah. you've said that you put your relationship with Megan above everything else, including acting jobs, and have a rule that you never do a job that will keep you apart for more than two weeks. Is that the secret of your twenty-year marriage?
3: Well, uh, I suppose. I mean, the secret to to our marriage, I think, is just we're lucky enough to have picked the right person because we love being together. We've been together for years and we sometimes choose to work together. We've gone on tour together. We do plays together. Uh, we wrote a book together. And, and so often people we know will say to us, why in the world would you time with your spouse? Like, and we say, man, I feel so bad for you that you would ask that question. Uh, you might reconsider the, some of the, your choices. Even, even two weeks sucks. I mm. mean, if if we get to the end of a week where we're apart, she just is, I mean, she's the love of my life. But it's not just all sappy romance. Like, it's there, there's a, a component. My weaknesses involve things like like to drink too much, will sit down and eat two pizzas. Like I'll I'll put myself in pain to, you know, be a a hedonist. And as a young person, you're like, okay, that's part of being young. But now if I'm away from Megan, I'll say, oh, there's a baseball game. I'm going to drink, you know, four beers, which is two. And I'm going to order a pizza. If I sometimes still do that before I'm even done, I'm like, oh yeah, this is why I'm married because I'd be dead of something by now because I'm stupid. Like, and I, <laughs> I can't help it. And so, recognizing and depending on my relationship to not just give me romance and love and, and physical fulfillment, it also just literally keeps me healthy. And so, the two week rule of that. You know, if somebody offered me, and they have, I've been offered jobs that would take me to New Zealand for a few months or what have you, you have to say, no, I, if if Megan can come with me, sometimes that's how we do it. We've both done and only if the other person can come visit or, you know, it always has to be part of the negotiation. That's my advice to everybody is like, make a household that you want to last forever no matter what your job is even if it's a career at a bank or something still that's going to end and you still want that household or that family or that relationship to support you during and beyond your job is whether it's a fancy movie job or just you know driving a bus you got to put your your home life and the affection you have for your family relationships above everything that's just you know i think that's the number
1: you've written about your relationship in several of your books but i find it most poignant in your brand new book where the deer and the antelope play the pastoral observations of one ignorant american who loves to walk outside congratulations on a really funny acerbic humorous and really wonderful book
3: Thank you so much. I'm really proud of it.
1: Uh, Your book is organized in three parts. Part one and two are focused on your 2019 pre-COVID to Glacier National Park in Montana and to Lake District Farm in northwestern England with your friends, the writer George Saunders, and Jeff Tweedy, the singer-songwriter and frontman for the band Wilco. And early in the book, you write that successfully utilizing bathroom facility, depends upon your cleanliness and your kindness, as well as that of your neighbors. If those who came before you have decent manners, you might avoid the main terror of park toilets. PPTYB, an acronym, OPPTYB. Can you talk about what OPPTYB is and how to avoid it?
3: Well, yes, the, the terror people's poop particles touching your butt, I believe. <laughs> and um, the terror is real. And it's, it's, it's funny. Unexpectedly, I'm going to swing you back to my sensei, Shozo Sato. We were... Um, I left I left a place out. We started our tour uh, in Cyprus, in the middle of the Mediterranean, in a 2,000-year-old Greek amphitheater, which was so incredible, to perform Kabuki Achilles. While we were there, we, we had the last couple weeks of rehearsal in a little uh, v- mountain village called Kalapaniotis, and... Uh, the young men in the show were being put up in a monastery in a setting, but, you know, quite idyllic uh, in the Cypriot mountains. And one day, Sensei came in to check on us and sort of check out, I get you know, our our comportment, as it were. Uh, and he looked into our bathroom, and I don't remember, you know, we had basically destroyed this bathroom. It was terrible. And he came out and gave me this lesson I can never forget, which is, he said, you leave a bathroom messy. No matter who comes after you into that bathroom, you are doing them such an unkindness. You're doing them such a, you're being such a bad neighbor. Into a bathroom and someone else has left it messy, it doesn't matter who did or when, the next person is going to think you did it. Yes. So, so not only do you have to be conscientious and gene and cleanliness, but now I'll go into a bathroom that someone else has been a jerk and left a mess, and I'm like, God damn it, sensei. Now I have to clean up some other jerk. But I mean those are the kind of values that uh, that i that I'm like, okay, that feels like something I would have taken from church where it's like there it, it's like picking up litter or you know it, it's like doing the right thing even when no one will see the right thing. It's never more true than with national park toilets because quite often. You come upon them when you're desperate for a place to relieve yourself. And if someone has left it somehow in an un- What what a horrible thing to do to your neighbors.
1: You also uh, talk about a trip that you and Megan took together. And in in your book, you describe how at the time, uh, which was just when COVID had really taken hold, both you and Megan with your own personal, you you termed it, flavors of depression and describe how your general happiness often depends upon your ability to accomplish good, productive work that does somebody some good. And you go on to state that whether it's as an writer or a woodworker or son or husband or neighbor, you've had the very good luck over the last few decades in almost always having been able to be of good use to someone. And you go on to write, having the vocational side of this personal economy stripped was quite alienating and left you feeling useless and adrift. And when the pandemic began, all forms of work instantly disappeared. But you were grateful that you were still needed by Megan to fill your role as spouse, or you would have been truly... And in part three of the book, you write about how a month or two into COVID lockdown, Megan came up with the idea to get an RV or camping trail, or to travel across the country to spend Thanksgiving with your family in Illinois. Think of this idea.
3: Megan is the is the idea factory. She's a, an incredible picker of things, uh, which I've I, I learned pretty quickly into our relationship, and so. Uh, Things that I, I don't care what color we paint the hallway or which uh, sink faucet we choose. And so I learned the many arenas in which I say, honey, please, you you go ahead and curate this experience. Uh, and so something as big as like, let's buy some sort of camper situation and and become, you know, road tripping campers is pretty substantial. And I... Always at first, uh, I'm not sure. I, I want to bristle. That sounds like a big change. And, you know, who likes change? But p- pretty quickly, I, I was like, well, I know how it goes. When you pick something and resistant, I always end up real happy at the end. So, yeah, let's go look at, uh, at Airstreams. Once we looked at it, and it, we're sitting in one that was so cool at, at this dealership in Orange County. And we're sitting in the little end of the Airstream, and the windows are up, and the breeze is blowing through the screens. And I was like, this is uh, crazy and exciting, but yeah, let's go for it. Let's haul this 30 foot <laughs> around several of the United States.
1: You named the airstream Nutmeg. Why Nutmeg?
3: I you know, I'm a huge fan of this set of twenty-one seafaring novels by uh, set in her around the Victorian era of Her Majesty's Royal Navy. The movie Master and Commander was from one of these books. The kind of people who know all of the chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings It's a similar completest body of work, where it's especially for uh, woodworking boat builders. There's all kinds of great boat talk in these books, Uh, and one of the novels is entitled "Of Consolation," and it's the it's the name of a ship that the lead character uh, is, is commissioned to captain. And I just I've always loved that title and it's a very cute ship and so it just occurred to me the of consolation part is nearly just as important when it comes to our airstream as the nutmeg part because the nutmeg is cute and it's a it's a flavorful package of consolation and it really did console us during the pandemic.
1: Megan worked on decorating the interior of the Airstream, which you describe in the book as the 2020 love of the bottle from the classic television show, I Dream of Jeannie. Um, Was there a lot of velvet?
3: There's not literally a lot of velvet, but figuratively, it's all velvet. Uh, She is a master of f- and, you know, rugs. We've had two houses together. And and when she designs a house, she has always said she loves to be able to throw herself down uh, at at any given moment. And so there's always uh, tastefully arranged pillows and and lounging spots.
1: On the trip, you often took long hikes by yourself. And on one occasion, when you were lost, you met a scientist who you ended up hiking quite a distance with. And asked him a question that you'd been thinking about over the last four years, and especially since the pandemic had begun. You asked him if he thought humans' propensity for killing each other, whether quickly, like in war or genocide or like with systemic racism, the wealth gap, real estate redlining, the incarceration system, and our seeming indifference to climate change, could this be Mother Nature striking a balance? What was his answer?
3: That's a very good question, and then said that he and his brother talked about that quite a bit. He talked about some research that he had done himself in the human uh, genetic propensity for being violent to one another. Because we are gifted with a conscience and morality, it makes us want to think that being empathetic and compassionate is actually healthy for the species when the truth is more Darwinian where those of us that are violent to one another or are selfish in our actions help perpetuate the species more than than being generous. He said it's quite likely that it's Mother Nature's way of, of keeping us from Becoming even more overpopulated than we already are
1: seems a little bit pessimistic, but kind of something we deserve in some ways.
3: Maybe I mean it's it, there certainly is dark, but life has darkness. I mean you know there's there's springtime and blossom, and then there's death and decay, and then, and it's a, it's the cycle of life. And uh, he was an optimistic guy, but I, saying. That's kind of the conundrum of humanity, is that we have both within us.
1: One of the tensions in your book is what you refer to as the juxtaposition of our responsible use of nature with our ownership of it. What have the trips that you've taken over the years around the country shown you about this dichotomy now?
3: Well, it's sort of brought into very sharp focus the, uh, the difference that Wendell Berry talked to me about me, uh, the, the riddle that fueled this book, and that is seeing the national park circumstances, which is like the beauty of nature as something we have to travel to, you know, something other than where we are. Quite clear that, you know, it, it's an actual, it's a whole business. It's a, uh, something that people have always done. You know, when, when John Muir and Theodore Roosevelt and... George Bird Grinnell and and their peers national parks and said these these are our crown jewels you know it still is very prevalent today when people talk about conservation or or nature and preserving sure. nature it brings to mind images the sierra club and greenpeace and yosemite and you know the orc- orcas and you know the alaskan ocean and Pandas. so forth yeah exactly and what i came to to then learn and sort of pointed me in the right direction was how interconnected all of us actually are so not only is nature in our backyard uh, and in our windowsills and but we also are just as much a part of that nature as El Capitan or any panda. And that our, our relationships with each other, you know, person to person. So like uh, Europeans to indigenous North Americans and every other permutation, all of that is also part of our respect for nature. It's all connected. That's what really jumped out at me was, okay, Focused more on Aldo Leopold, the agrarian from Madison, Wisconsin, and his writing in, in a Sand County Almanac and other places about how you have to pay attention and respect and value every in nature's mechanism, not just the not just the uh, the star players. <laughs> you need everybody on the bench as well.
1: Well, speaking of Aldo, you conclude where the deer and the antelope play with a quote by him. You write, ethical doing the right thing when no one else is watching, even when doing the wrong thing is legal. What made you decide to end the book this way?
3: Well, because when it comes down to it, I think we're all complicit in society one way or another. As soon as you send a check to an electric company, you're, you're giving away the... Your agency, you're giving away your vote in what's happening in that particular part of nature. Sending money to a corporation saying, okay, and I can turn on my light switch now. Great. Thank you. Oh, by the way, I assume you're going to be cool with the way you're making this electricity, right? Like you you wouldn't ruin a mountain or a you're not going to make any species go extinct or ravage a forest or anything. And what we've come to learn that we've given that agency to so many corporations who of course ravage (laughs) natural resources because they serve profit above all else. To my way of thinking uh, it's something I, when I first started reading Wendell Berry, my epiphany was, Oh, I'm not going to get this messaging, like, tune this out and just be a lazy consumer and watch TV and go to work and, you know, buy my stuff and then get old and die. And if we stay within that set of blinders, if we choose that myopia, then we will exterminate ourselves on the planet. The planet's going to be just fine. She was here long before us and she'll be here long after us. So if we care about one another and ourselves and our families and the health of then we should try and do the right thing, even when no one is watching and pay attention to, you know, uncomfortable, inconvenient truths like climate change and corporate agribusiness, you know, that, that need reform, just learning about who makes our food, where it's sourced and how, And how that's healthy or not. I feel like young people really get it, so I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful that we're around in time to uh, enjoy a sandwich in another 50 years.
1: This is a a much more political book than your others, where you're really talking about the state of the world, Um, but you also manage to keep it really funny. But there is a, a more serious side that seems to be coming out, not only in your writing, but also in your acting. Your role in *Devs*, for example, as Forrest, the company uh, who suffered a tragedy in trying to sort of remake the world in order to potentially save himself and his family. What was it like for you to do a totally serious role like this?
3: I mean, I'm such a massive fan of Alex Garland to begin with, uh, specifically for his films Ex Machina and Annihilation. Among, I mean, he was a novelist first. He wrote The Beach, which became a uh, movie. So to get to work with him um, on on this beautiful eight episode series. Uh, was just a gift in so many ways but it, it was kind of a wonderful throwback to my time in chicago theater where role was in this dramatic play as a sort of a villainous irish indentured servant who the audience loved to hate i always thought that was going to be my wheelhouse like gene hackman as lex luthor dastardly charming bad guys or something and so Getting to work on material that heady and that dramatic was just an incredible gift. The cast was so incredible. Alex's, you know, the crew heads, the, the key, the department keys that always work with him, his, the visual effects people, the camera people, the, the music people. It's just a, a, an incredible experience. If the, to, that the world was going to allow me to be a thespian, to be an actor, that I rolled the dice correctly enough that I get to do something as effective as Ron Swanson, but then I, I'm granted permission to continue as an artist and do more work. So I'm really grateful for that and look forward to uh, trying some more stuff.
1: I just thought I'd share with you, my wife came in at the very end I guess the last 15 or the last episode and I've been binge watching over the last couple of days and she was watching you and she said, is he a good guy or a bad guy? And I looked at her and I said, kind of both. She nodded. And I thought that really reflected the, the range of, of the pathos and the hope for the future that this character brought to and that you created in, in that role. So I wanted to share that with you. I thought you'd enjoy that question.
3: I love her. that. Thank you. I, I, that's right on the nose. I really appreciate it. And I have to give the credit for that to Alex. I mean, uh, what the whole show is about is, is the morality of, and it's questioning the morality that we're seeing play out yeah. in real life with the power, the, un, the unfettered power of Facebook and Google and these, these companies that are controlling the information of the world uh, unchecked. Are they good guys or bad guys? And yeah. Sadly, it's, uh, maybe it's a little more murky in devs than it is in real life because there's not a lot of good guy stuff news
1: i have one last question for you nick and it's also about devs you had epic epic hair in that series is it your hair
3: no it, oh. uh, i i was uh it's my beard yes um wonderful artist named nadia stacy she won awards i know she won a bafta if nothing else for um the favorite mm-hmm. with olivia coleman yeah and she she also did uh, the recent Emma Stone movie, uh, "One Hundred and One Dalmatians," villain. Yeah, Cruella de Vil. Cruella, and uh, she did the father with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Colman. So this incredible British hair and makeup artist created that look. Alex' photo of just this surfer dude. So that was a wig that had a bunch of bald on top. So I shaved my head. And then had, a, had this huge beard, which then made ginger, to go with it. So my favorite thing in the world is to look unrecognizable. And she really uh, hit it out of the park. I, I was so tickled to get to do that for six months.
1: Well, Nick, thank you so much for helping us to understand the world and humorous and really charming way, um, and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
3: Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for your great podcast.
1: Thank you. Nick Offerman's latest book is titled, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, The Provations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside. You could also see him in the Netflix series Colin in Black and White, and the amazing science fiction thriller Devs on FX on Hulu. You can find it Offerman, his books, and his other projects at nicofferman.co. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie. We're to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.